Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brethren Church. Hope everybody's having a good weekend so far. Uh, my name's Clark, and I'm one of the leaders on our staff. And if I haven't met you before, love to meet you and chat with you a little bit after service this morning. Well, as Pastor Bud mentioned, we're going to be kicking off a brand new sermon series this morning on the life of David. And I'm excited to jump into that with you. Uh, if you're a Bible person, my guess is you might be a little bit familiar uh, with David. David was a shepherd. He was a hymn writer. Uh, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. And he also has a little bit of a darker side, as we are going to discover in this series. But because this is the first week, I want to kind of lay a little bit of the foundation for you today. So a lot of this is going to be introduction, but I think it's going to be helpful for you as we begin this journey together. Kind of as a lead into today's message, um, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, topic of leadership. I know last week, as we concluded our first Peter, uh, first Peter series, we talked about leadership, but um, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership today because uh, David was a leader. I've always found the topic of leadership to be uh, a fascinating one. I enjoy reading leadership books. Um, I enjoy leading, uh, leadership podcasts. In seminary, I actually majored in leadership, but I have to be honest with you, I have a lot to learn about leadership. Um, but one thing I can tell you is that people crave it. Um, I know I do, especially during uh, COVID-19. It was nice to have uh, people rise up and lead during that time of uncertainty. And even now, as we're still navigating this together, it's, it's nice to have leaders to do that. Um, our fallen condition, though, uh, it's good that people crave leadership, but then there's also this thing called sin, uh, which tends to mess everything up. And the Bible tells us that through Adam in the book of Genesis, that the inherent inclination to sin entered the human race and that human beings became sinners by nature. And the Bible says that when Adam sinned in the garden, his inner nature was transformed by his sin, the sin of rebellion. And so bringing to him spiritual death and depravity, which could be passed on to all who came after him. I like to put it this way. Uh, we are sinners not because we sin, rather we sin because we're sinners. It's part of our sin nature. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Just as we inherit physical features from our parents, we also inherit sinful natures from Adam. In fact, David himself lamented this condition, this fallen human nature in Psalm 51 verse 5 when he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So what does sin have to do with leaders? Well, last time I checked, leaders are people, and people are sinful. So what does that mean? Well, we have sinful people leading sinful people. It means that leaders have flaws, and that they're plagued with imperfections. And this is not a surprise, this is not new information, but we've seen this flawed leadership show up in a host of different ways throughout history. In fact, according to a uh, 2017 issue of The Atlantic, numerous people were asked, 
this question, who is the worst leader of all time? And so here's how they responded. Uh, one individual from Rochester, New York said, the worst leader would be Kaiser Wilhelm II, whose decision to back Austria-Hungary against Serbia led to World War I, which in turn led to World War II, which then led to the atomic and hydrogen bombs in the Cold War. Another individual, when asked that question, who is the worst leader of all time, they said, Neville Chamberlain, peace for our time led to World War II and millions of civilian and military casualties. Another guy, his name is Matt Carp, he is the author of The Vast Southern Empire, said, the bad leader I know best is Jefferson Davis. He embraced America's deadliest conflict over the right to own people as property, and by the end of it, he had earned the hatred of almost everyone involved, including his fellow people owners. But come on, the answer is Hitler. It has to be Hitler. So why tell you that? Because David was also a flawed leader. But here's what's so different about David. David's repentance is what made him a man after God's own heart. And by the way, a man after God's own heart, that does not mean perfection. God, uh, he was able to, to get a hold of God's grace. David was able to get a hold of God's mercy, and he experienced both forgiveness and restoration in his life. David was hungry for God. He sought after God. He had a passion for spiritual things, and he tried to please God despite his failures. And his actions proved that he was a God chaser. And so here's why this sermon series is going to be so important and so helpful. Uh, John Maxwell once said, everyone is a leader because everyone influences someone. And I believe that's true, whether you're an influencer in your family or in your workplace or throughout your community, everyone is a leader. So we can learn how to become better leaders, leaders that are hungry for God, leaders that are passionate about the things of God, but it can't stop there. That would be incomplete. Even more than that, we're continually reminded throughout this series and this study in the life of David that Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus Christ is the true and better king. This one profound truth has profound implications as we're going to see throughout this series. So I encourage you, if you write notes, you might write that down, that Jesus is the true and better king. Because the reality is, a lot of people think that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Or, in fact, a lot of non-Christians think the Bible is irrelevant. But what many people don't know or understand is that the Bible is all about Jesus. Think of it this way, given the Bible's overwhelming diversity, uh, the storyline's underlying coherence is remarkable. The Bible has 66 books of various genres. There is over 40 authors from a variety of backgrounds and occupations. It covers 10 civilizations, three continents, three languages, and then there's one unified story of redemption. The Bible has one ultimate plan, it has one ultimate plot, one ultimate champion, one ultimate king. Matt Smethurst, the managing editor of the Gospel Coalition, I love the way he puts it. He says it this way. If we ever hope to properly handle the stories in the Bible, we must first grasp the story of the Bible. And what is that story of the Bible? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died an atoning sacrificial death, and then he rose from the grave, conquering, defeating Satan, sin, and death. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so what we get to see through the study of David, that this all culminates, this all leads up to Jesus. Uh, Tommy Nelson, I believe he's a pastor in Texas, he gives kind of a 30,000 foot view of the Bible. And he says it this way, the Old Testament, it's about the anticipation of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are about the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The epistles are about the explanation of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is about the consummation of Jesus Christ. It's been said that if the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed, then the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. Maybe you've heard that before, but I think that's so true. So we're going to be focusing mainly in the Old Testament. And you're going to feel as we read through First and Second Samuel that there is this anticipation that one day there will be a king of kings, that there will be a Messiah, that there will be a Christ that will come. David is included in the lineage of Jesus. And the New Testament tells the story of Jesus as the story of the Son of God, but also as the story of the Son of David, from his birth in Matthew chapter 1 until his final coming in Revelation chapter 22. I don't know if you knew this, but at least 12 times the Gospels refer to Jesus as the son of David. One of the things that we're going to see over and over and over throughout this series together is that Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus is the true and better Saul. Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the true and better king. And listen to me when I say this. If you fail to see that the whole Bible is just one big story that points to the life death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're going to dismiss all those stories of the Old Testament as dumb and irrelevant. You're not going to see that it all points to the person of Jesus Christ. You're not going to see that the reason that you exist is to worship Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do something during the series. As we're going through this series, I need you to view the story of David through the lens of the bigger story of the gospel. And as we're learning about King Saul and King David, you need to know and understand that there is an anticipation that one day there will be a true and better Saul and a true and better David. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I can't make you do this, but if you don't, like I said, you, you won't see the bigger picture. Each sermon in this series is just going to seem like you need to be more like David, or you need to be more like Saul, or you need to be more like... And that's not the message that we're trying to send at all. What we're going to discover is that flawed leaders, these examples of flawed leadership, is exactly why we need a Savior. And we see the same thing today as well, through uh, political uh, leaders and uh, people that hold various offices, that those people have, they have flawed leadership. And, and that's why we need a savior today as well. So to set up a little bit of the background of where we're at, we're in the Old Testament, and there is an anticipation of the Messiah, the Christ to come. There's a longing that only Christ can satisfy. So what, what book of the Old Testament are we going to be looking at? We're going to be spending a lot of our time in the book of First and Second Samuel. Uh, for the first half of this series, we're going to be in First Samuel. The second half of this series will be in the book of Second Samuel. 1st and 2nd Samuel was originally written in Hebrew as one unified book. And late, later on in history, 
it was actually translated from Hebrew into Greek. The Greek translation took up more space, and it would no longer fit into one scroll. So what did they do? The translators, they split the book into two, and they had one scroll was 1 Samuel, and the second scroll was 2 Samuel. And the Hebrew Bibles didn't split the book into two until the 15th century A.D. Here's something else you need to know. The literary genre of 1 and 2 Samuel is historical. So we're looking at history here. We're seeing history unfold, and it opens around 1100 B.C. So the thing you need to know and understand about 1 Samuel is that this book tells the story of three individuals. Samuel, Israel's judge, Saul, Israel's first king, and David, the founder of a dynasty that would endure for more than three centuries. 1 Samuel is a book about transition. It's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. And under the theocracy, God had provided the periodic leadership needed by the people, the judges. But now leadership would be institutionalized. It would be hereditary. And the author displays, like we'll begin to see today, God's ideal kingship by contrasting Saul's failures with David's successes. And the book is named after the first major character in the narrative. And here's why this is so important. Here's why this book of the Bible is so important. Although the book of Joshua indicates that Israel started out fairly well in their attempt to live in the promised land according to uh, God's law, the Torah, by the end of the book of Judges, Israel had abandoned any serious attempt to obey God. And what we see in the book of Judges is a downward spiral, a very sad conclusion. It says that Israel had no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. So you'll notice on the screen there's kind of that downward spiral. What that represents is the cycle of sin that we see throughout the book of Judges, where Israel serves the Lord, Israel falls into sin and idolatry, Israel is enslaved, Israel cries out to the Lord, God raises up a judge, and Israel is delivered. And you see that cycle just continue and continue and continue all throughout the book of Judges. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel's enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge, and Israel is delivered. And that cycle continues on and on until things get so out of control, the question is, what is even happening here? And the question becomes, who will rescue Israel from this mess that they've created? And the answer, of course, is David. And First and Second Samuel presents the rise and the reign of David, this bigger-than-life hero who restored true worship of God, and in essence completed the conquest that Israel began back in the book of Joshua. So here it is, David, full of promise, full of potential. David looked very much like a Messiah and a deliverer. For all of his virtue... He was still only a mere man. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, it also describes his sinful actions and the terrible consequences that followed as a result. And what we're going to see in this series as well is that it leaves us still looking for the great deliverer to come. And so at this point in the story where we're going to pick up today, the Israelites have been defeated by the Philistines and the ark of God has been taken Today what we're going to see is the beginning of the kingship in Israel under the guidance of Samuel. We're going to see the rise of King Saul today. So we are doing a study in the life of David, but if we want to understand David, we have to understand Saul a little bit. 
So without further ado, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. So notice the Bible talks about this man, Kish, and it says that he was a man of standing, or a man of power. In other words, he was wealthy, and it, this is confirmed by the fact, because in verse 3, you'll notice that we learn that he has donkeys and servants, and that's just Bible language for saying that he was wealthy. And notice what else it says here in verse 2. It says that Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So here the Bible introduces us to Saul. And what do we learn about Saul? Right off the bat, we learn that Saul is handsome, he's young, and he's tall. See, emphasis was placed on the external appearance of the leaders. And we can identify with that today. I mean, we do that not just with leaders, we do that with, with everyone. We put emphasis on external appearances. Well, that's what was happening here. Uh, the Hebrew root for Saul means asked of God. In chapter 8, verse 10, we learn that the people were asking for a king. Israel said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. Give us a king. But even though God appointed Saul, we're going to discover that he was really the people's choice. Given by the Lord in answer to their request, the Lord's choice would be from the tribe of Judah. As we learn in Genesis chapter 49 of the Messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. In verse 3, it says that now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. So I'm just going to summarize a little bit. Uh, the Bible tells us that this story about how there were donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, who were lost. So there's these donkeys that are lost. And like I said, you know, why does it matter that the donkeys were lost? Well, it matters because in Bible times, lost donkeys meant lost wealth. So he tells Saul to go look for these donkeys. They're having trouble finding these donkeys. They look all over for them, from the hill country of Ephraim to the territory of Benjamin. And then notice what it says in verse 5. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, and my father will stop uh, thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. People, uh, perhaps he will tell us what, they, what way to take. So the Bible tells us that they reached this place called Zuf. And now Saul is thinking, we better get back before my dad starts to worry about us. And notice that there is this man of God here. So this, this man of God, who is this man of God? It's a description of the prophet and the judge Samuel. The man of God refers to the prophet. And they're thinking, maybe if we find this guy, he can tell us which way to take. Right? He can tell us where these donkeys are. So they start looking for this man of God. 
who again is one of our main characters, Samuel. Bounce down to 14 with me and notice what happens next. It says, they went up to the town and as they were entering it, there was Saul coming toward them, or Samuel coming towards them on his way up the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. So the Bible tells us now that Saul and his servant, they head into this town. And as they're heading up, Samuel is coming towards them. And apparently he knew that they were coming because God told them the day before. So God says to Samuel that he is to, notice, anoint Anoint Saul ruler over Israel when he sees him. What does it mean to anoint? It means this. It means to represent, this represents a setting apart for the service to the Lord. It literally means one's given prominence or one placed in front. One that is designated to rule. God told Samuel, Saul is going, this guy Saul, this guy that's looking for these donkeys, this guy is going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. By the way, the Philistines, just to remind you, uh, they were one of the rival groups of the Israelites as they settled into the land of Canaan. And notice it also says that their cry has come to me. God says, I hear their cries. Their cries has come to me. What is he saying? I'll tell you what it's saying. The people had been crying out for, de from de for deliverance from the Philistines the same way that they cried out for liberation from the oppression of the Egyptians in Exodus 3. So I'm going to summarize a little bit for the sake of time. The Bible goes on to tell us the moment Saul laid eyes, or Samuel laid eyes on Saul, God said, he's the one. That's the guy. That's the man I told you about. This is the one who will govern my people. The Bible says Saul came up to Samuel in the street He's like, excuse me, sir, can you tell me where the prophet lives? And Samuel, of course, is like, that's me. I'm, I'm the prophet. Come have dinner with me. Which is so weird. If you just met somebody and said, come to my house, have dinner. But maybe it wasn't so weird in that time. The Bible goes on to say, tomorrow morning, Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow morning, I'll tell you what's on your mind, and I'll send you on your way. Also, you know those donkeys that you've been looking for? Don't worry about them. Israel's future is now in your hands. What a weird scenario. A guy is looking for some lost donkeys, and then somebody says, yeah, don't worry about the donkeys. You're going to lead Israel now. So Saul says to Samuel, why are you talking to me about this? I'm from the smallest of Israel's tribes. Even more, I'm from the most insignificant clan of my tribe. And notice what happens in verse 22. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall, seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said, I have invited guests, and Saul dined with Samuel that day. So this is an interesting scene here. The Bible says that Samuel takes Saul into this dining hall, and there's these seats, and he's the head of the table. There's like 30 guests around. They're all going to share this meal together. And Samuel tells the chef, notice the Bible talks about this, this thigh, 
and how it was set aside for Saul. And this is significant. Why is it significant? It is significant because in Leviticus chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, you are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. So, so here's what's happening here. So Samuel received this thigh, the portion of the sacrifice reserved for the priest. And by Samuel giving of this choice piece of meat to Saul, it was a distinct honor. I mean, that would be like me giving you my last chicken nugget. Be kind of like a big deal. I'm just kidding. I just want to see if you're still awake. Samuel giving this piece of meat to Saul was a distinct honor, though. And it reflected Saul's new status as a designated king. So he says, bring out the choice cut of meat, the one I reserve. The chef brings it out, places it in front of Saul. It says, here is the meal that was kept aside just for you. It says, enjoy your meal. So Saul and Samuel, they eat this meal together. And then what we learn is that a bed was prepared for Saul. So not only does he get dinner, but he also gets a bed. And it's on the roof of Samuel's house. So they, it says they wake up the next day, and then Samuel calls to Saul on the roof. He says, get up, I'm going to send you off. So Saul gets up, and they go out into the street, and they get to the outskirts of town. And the Bible says that Samuel tells Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead of us, but stay here with me a second, because I have to talk to you. I have a message from God to give to you. And so when we get into chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? So then the Bible basically tells us now, just to summarize what we read, Samuel took this flask of oil, poured it onto Saul's head, and kissed him, which sounds a little bit weird, but notice Samuel told him, God has anointed you ruler. What does that mean? It means this, those, or, excuse me, the Lord chose Saul to be the leader of Israel. That's what that means. And he communicated his choice through the private anointing by Saul, Samuel, signifying a setting aside for God's service. And notice he talks about this inheritance. What is this inheritance? The inheritance was God's nation, Israel. And even more, Saul, Samuel tells him to confirm all this, after you leave here today, as you get closer to your home country, Benjamin, you're going to meet two men. And these two men will say, the donkeys that you went to look for are found, but your father's worried. Samuel then tells him, after, you're going to go to the Oak of Tabor, and there you'll meet three men going up to worship God at Bethel. They'll say hello to you. They're going to offer you two loaves of bread, which you'll accept. I'll bounce down to verse 5. He says, after that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, harps being played before them and they will be prophesying the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them you will be changed into a different person so notice what he says they're going to come to Gibeah there's going to be a Philistine garrison there when you get to that town he says there are going to be a bunch of prophets coming down from the high place playing harps tambourines flutes drums 
And notice he says they're going to be prophesying. What does it mean to prophesy? It means to declare the word of the Lord. Sometimes this would be accompanied by music. And notice it also tells us that the Spirit of God will come on you. What is Samuel saying? He's saying that the Holy Spirit will enable Saul to declare the word of the Lord with the prophets. And then he tells him, notice, you'll be changed into a different person. What's that all about? Well, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Saul would emerge as another man, equipped in the manner like others in the Old Testament, such as Gideon in Judges chapter 6 says the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. Or in Judges chapter 11, the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And that's how it would operate in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit works different in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. Right? I will give you my Spirit, and He will lead you and guide you into truth. So, so we, isn't that amazing that we have for those of us that follow Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. That's just a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's worth mentioning. And so Saul is transformed into a new person. And then in verse 7 it says, Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands finds to do, for God is with you. In other words, when these confirming signs are accomplished, you'll know that you're raring to go. So again, just to summarize a little bit what's happening here. The Bible says, then Samuel tells Saul, go down to Gilgal. Which we're going to learn that Gilgal is a very significant place in this story. A lot of stuff happens in Gilgal. He says, go to Gilgal and I'll follow you. I'll come down, join you in worship by sacrificing burnt offerings and peace offerings. Wait seven days and I'll come and tell you what to do next. And then the Bible tells us, as Saul turned and left Samuel, at that very moment, God transformed him, making him a new person. And all the confirming signs took place that same day. It all happened the same way that the Samuel prophet said it would. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, there were prophets right in front of them. Before they knew it, the Spirit of God came on Saul. He was prophesying right along with them. When people who have known Saul... They saw Saul prophesying with the prophets. They were totally surprised. And they were like, what is going on here? What's going on with Saul? How in the world did this guy get to be a prophet? Where did these people come from? And then, this is kind of funny, the Bible goes on to tell us that when Saul was done prophesying, he went home. And when he got home, he talked to his uncle, the uncle that told him to go look for the lost donkeys. And I, can't, I wish I could be a fly on the wall during this interaction. But the uncle asked Saul, he says, so where have you been? And uh, Saul tells his uncle, out looking for the donkeys. Uh, we looked and we looked and we couldn't find him. But we did find this guy named Samuel. And then Saul's uncle asked him, so what did Samuel tell you? And Saul told him, well, he told us not to worry that the donkeys would be found. But Saul doesn't breathe a word to his uncle of what happened with Samuel and what Samuel said about the kingship. So I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. Some people debate whether Saul is being humble about this or not. I'm not really sure what to think about it, so I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards. But if you get, when you get to verse 17 of chapter 10, something uh, very interesting takes place. It says that Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So what's happening here? Well, the Bible says that Samuel calls the people to assemble before God at Mitzpah. And he addresses the children of Israel. He says, this is God's message to you. Here's what's happening. I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the Egyptian oppression, from all the bullying governments that made your lives miserable. And now you want nothing to do with your God. The very God who has a history of saving you and rescuing you out of all sorts of troubles. And now you say, no, we want a king. Give us a king. I was talking to Pastor Bud earlier, and I was thinking the, the Israelites saying, like, we want a king, and we want a king now. <laughs> Reminds me of the, that J.G. Wentworth commercial. It says, it's my money, and I want it now. But they're saying, like, no, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. We want a king. So God basically says, well, if that's what you want, then that's what you're going to get. Right? If you buy the ticket, now you've got to take the ride. So what happens? Well, despite the past faithfulness of God to his people, they still desired a human king to deliver them from the hands of their en en enemies. So Samuel says, present yourselves formally before God by your tribes and your families. The Bible said after Samuel got all the tribes of Israel lined up, the, the Benjamin tribe was picked. And then he lined up Benjamin, the Benjamin tribe, and the families, and the family of Matri was picked. The family of Matri took its place in the lineup, and then the name Saul, son of Kish, was picked. But when they went looking for Saul, he wasn't anywhere to be found. The Bible says that they asked the Lord, where is Saul? The Lord says, he's right over there. He's hidden among the supplies. And so when we get to verse 23, something very interesting takes place. They ran and brought him out, it says, and as he stood, he's talking about Saul, as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man this, the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, Long live the king! The Bible says that they ran and got Saul. Notice it says that he was a head taller than all the others. And notice it says that Samuel is like, look at this guy. There is nobody like this guy in all of Israel. A lot of commentators think that Samuel was being sarcastic. He's like, look at this guy. He's young, he's handsome, he's tall. And I don't know why, but for some reason, the picture that I get in my mind when, I, when Saul is standing around all of the other people, for, for, for some reason, I, I think of the movie Toy Story, when, when Buzz Lightyear is in that claw machine, and he's standing over all the aliens, you know that scene? And he's, and he's just like taller than everybody. And I don't know why that is, but that's kind of the picture I get. You know, the aliens are like, oh, wow. And I think that's, that's kind of how the Israelites probably were in that moment. They were just so impressed with this guy. He looks like a king. He's, he's young. He's tall. He's, he's handsome. Uh, Saul's physical stature was impressive to them. Uh, being head and shoulders above the other people gave Saul a, a kingly presence. Samuel then addressed the people, right? He says, look at this guy that the Lord's chosen. He's the best. There's nobody like him amongst all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. 
And so in verse 25, the Bible says that Samuel explained to the people the rights and the duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll, deposited it before the Lord. Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. So notice the Bible says that Samuel explained the duties of kingship to the people. What exactly are the duties of kingship? Well, we actually have those in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 14 to 20. The Bible tells us that for a king to be king of Israel, a king must be the Lord, someone that the Lord your God chooses. It must be from among your fellow Israelites. This person must not acquire many horses. They must not take multiple wives. They must not accumulate much silver and gold. In other words, the king was not supposed to rely on military strength or political alliances or the wealth or position and authority. Instead, the king was to look to the Lord. He was to read the law. In other words, be a Bible reader. And it would result in the fear of the Lord and humility. So then the Bible's going to go on and tell us that Samuel went on to instruct the people in the rules and regulations involved in a kingdom. He wrote it all down on a scroll and he placed it before the Lord and then Samuel sent everybody home. And the Bible says that Saul also went home to Gibeah and with him some true and brave men who the Lord moved to join him. But others were saying, they were skeptical, they said, how can this fellow Saul save us? And they despised Saul. They refused to congratulate him. And the Bible says that Saul kept silent. So later on, what we're going to discover is that Saul was really not that great of a guy. Um, those requirements for king, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, Saul did not keep all of those. And the Lord tells Saul, later on, the Bible's going to tell us that the Lord tells Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites were a nomadic people in the desert, a, a marked people that attacked the Israelites in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And we learn that Saul does, in fact, defeat the Amalekites in battle. However, the Amalekites were not completely destroyed. Even more, Saul and the people greedily spare the choice spoil of the land. So they disobey God's word, and, and it demonstrates their faithlessness. So when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, and this is kind of teeing up next week when we introduce David, we learn after Saul disobeys God, says in verse 10 of chapter 15, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me. He has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So the Bible says that, notice, Samuel, he was grieved. He cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel's roles, role as priest over the people gave him great concern over the poor performance of Saul as king. King Saul was just like all the other kings of the other nations. He was self-centered, he was self-willed, and he was disobedient to the things of God. So we go from a theocracy to a monarchy, and we discover that things are really not much different. It's more of the same, more flawed leadership, more sin, more depravity. 
So I want to circle back to that big idea at the beginning, beginning of our time together, that Jesus is the true and better king. Jesus is the true and better king. And we need to remind ourselves this because we're going to see this flawed leadership in Saul. We're going to see that flawed leadership in David as well. And like I said, um, when we review the do's and the don'ts for Israel's future king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the way it outlines what a king ought to be says that he must be a Jew. He shall write himself a copy of the law, shall read the copy of the law all the days of his life, shall fear the Lord, shall observe all the words of the law. Neither he nor the people shall multiply horses, shall not return to Egypt, shall not multiply wives for himself, shall not greatly increase silver or gold for himself, shall not lift his heart up above his people, he shall not turn aside from God's commandment. I don't know if you knew this or not, but David's son Solomon violated all of those prohibitions. But we're going to see that David violated the last two. Why is that? It's because Jesus is the only king that can satisfy our deepest longings. He is the true and better king. He is the king of kings. And it's the same way today. Nothing has changed. And it's okay to vote people into office. Um, it's okay to, to be a good citizen. But to put all of our hope into one person's leadership no person was meant to bear that kind of weight. That's only Jesus. Jesus is the King of Kings. Let me address one specific audience and then we'll be done. Maybe for you, or maybe somebody you know, they're just not sure about the whole David story. You hear that story of David and Goliath, and you think, man, that's just a little kid's story. I want you to know that it all points to Jesus. If you don't believe me, then read what the Bible says in Luke chapter 24. After Jesus was crucified and he rose from the grave, we learn that Jesus, he's kind of incognito, and he tells some of his disciples as they're walking on this road to Emmaus, and here's what Jesus says to him. He says after his resurrection, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So after revealing himself to his 11 disciples, shortly after, Jesus reiterates this same point in verses 44 and 45 of Luke. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And it wasn't only after his resurrection that Jesus spoke this way. Before his death, he explained to the Pharisees, the Jewish religious establishment, the Bible experts of the day, his central place in their great story. He said to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And so, like I said, the bottom line is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. This all points to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better king. So I just want to encourage you with that, because as we see all these many failures in these leadership's lives, we need to be reminded of that. We need to remember that as we study the life of David, and remember that Jesus is the true and better king. I want to invite the band up now, and as they're getting settled in, I just want us to think about the fact that all Scripture 
points to Jesus, that he is the true and better king, that most of our problems actually stem from the fact that we fail to see this. From judges to kings to monarchs to various types of governments, right? There's some pretty okay leaders out there. And I'm not saying there's no such thing as a good leader. I know personally, I want to be a good leader, but there's no such thing as a perfect leader. Only Jesus is the perfect leader, the true and better king. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for, for who you are, that you are the true and better king. And that, Lord, when we uh, look at your Old Testament, God, it's... Uh, it's, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. It's easy to forget that all of this is really culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also know that your word tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, God. So we can't ignore the Old Testament. We can't ignore the life of David, the life of Saul, but God, as we read that, help us not to get discouraged, um, but help us to remember that these flawed leaders are exactly why we need a Savior. And it's the same way today. Lord, help us to be those that are in positions of leadership, God, which, you know, if, if we have leadership, we have influence. Help us to be people that are hungry for God, to be people that are sought seeking you, people that are passionate for spiritual things. Help us to be uh, people that want to please you despite our failures and help our actions to prove that we are chasing after you. But God, like I said, also help us to remember to embrace not only that mindset, but to remember that that you, Jesus, you are the only perfect leader. You are the true and better king. You're the king of kings, and you're the Lord of lords. You're the beginning and the end. And uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.